Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program, taconnections.com. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale, seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Hey there, listeners. Ben Baldanza here, and welcome to Airlines Confidential. Wherever you are, I hope you are warm and dry after the last week of wacky weather. Chris, are you done making snow angels in Dallas? Hey, Ben. I think I'm the only one on the block with snow shovels and salt that we moved from Virginia seven years ago, but it's starting to warm up. The weather did a number on U.S. Airlines, certainly canceling what I think is probably, as we go to press here, close to 10,000 flights over the past week. So that's our first news item. Ben, talk to us about recovery from all these cancellations and crew displacements. And was this a good thing that it happened at the start of the month and the shortest month of the year, or how is this going to play out? Well, cancellations are never good for the industry, but you make a really good point, Chris. These couldn't have happened at an almost better, any better time in a way. Travel right now is at a relative low point. We're far beyond the holiday travel of, you know, Christmas, New Year's, or however you celebrate the end of December and New Year's. And we're not yet into spring break kind of travel. It's not yet President's Day even. And so we're in a period where there's relatively low travel. Since there still aren't a lot of business people traveling, canceling a lot of flights in the last week or so is not great for the people who is who were booked on those flights, but it actually is disrupting fewer people than it would have had this happened a month ago or a month from now. So in that sense, I don't think it's going to change the relatively bullish outlook for the year that most airline CEOs talked about on their earnings calls. I don't think it's going to suggest anything about, you know, weakness in travel during the spring and summer, which everyone expects to be strong, especially for leisure demand. So it's an unfortunate thing. And canceling for weather is something that while customers don't like, and especially if they're on a plane that got canceled, they can be, you know, particularly disadvantaged. It's much more understandable than canceling because we don't have a crew or we're short on staff, which is the way the industry had been canceling for a while. So in that sense, I think this is not great news for the industry, but it's not terrible news either. Airlines deal with weather all the time, and when they cancel for weather, they're pretty good about restarting the operations relatively quickly once the weather is gone. Yeah, I agree with that. It was almost like if you could, you know, airline gods, if you could pick seven days to disrupt travel, where would they be? And it was almost like overlaid on what just happen. Like you said, if you were in the middle of that, either as a passenger or a crew member caught up in it, it wasn't going to be fun. But it was a relatively safe period with regard to kind of impacting 
the schedule impacting aircraft movement and impacting the bottom line. So um, we'll see where it goes from here. Ben, we don't have enough time often to talk about international aviation the way we should, um, although we'll do that later with our guest, Jeff Shane. But Ryanair CEO Michael Leary wasn't walking around with his usual bullish game face on last week, expressing concern about additional COVID variants and raising whether this was going to hit the summer travel recovery that most other airline CEOs are predicting. What were your thoughts? Well, Michael O'Leary, in addition to being a you know spectacular CEO for Ryanair for many, many years, um, is also not a fan of big governments in terms of controlling things. And I read the story about him saying that. And what I really think he was saying is, we don't know what's going to happen o- with Omicron. And he believes that governments really overreacted with Omicron and shut more things down and made travel difficult. So his warning was more of, if there's something after Omicron, are these governments going to keep people from traveling again, or will we be able to benefit from the pent-up demand that we all know is there? So I think he believes that there should be a very strong summer for airlines, but his worry is that even a modest new variant might be reacted to in a way that puts crimps on travel. And to that extent, I can be very empathetic with what he's saying, because we all know, especially for long-haul international travel, it's the rules and the restrictions that are really holding that travel back. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're, I mean, I wouldn't want to be a public health official right now, but they're bordering on some kind of chicken little moments where people are starting to doubt some of the advice. And that's, that's a scary thing too. So there was a lot of fear about Omicron and because it was unknown. And luckily, the uh, impact on the vaccinated was very minor, but still a lot of people were hospitalized. A lot of people died because of this latest variant. And so you've got a, that push and pull of like, what's the right advice and warning? It's kind of like, you know, we all get ready for a big storm and it never comes, uh, but you still listen to the weatherman every every night on the news. So um, I saw his comments as, as just how you characterize them, but clearly... There's going to be a little more tension and and back and forth as we head into the spring and summer and these variants pop up and threats are looming, you know, with regard to how serious should we take these things? Well, his is the kind of airline that might run a chicken little sale, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Well, this week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is delivering industry-leading sustainability, mature dispatch reliability, and world-class operating costs. Now with the GTF Advantage engine for the Airbus A320neo family, the best is getting even better. Learn more at pwgtf.com advantage. And Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm with key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. 
Seabury Capital Group's award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, and an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. And Ben, I've got to wonder if Seabury's involved in this next news item. There are reports that United is looking to sell parts of its Mileage Plus program to raise some cash. Ben, we've talked about this previously, and Air Canada did this with great fanfare a few years back, only to reacquire its aeroplan assets later. So how does this make sense or not, and how can it be done in a way that is fruitful for United? Well, it's real interesting, Chris. These programs, especially for the big U.S. airlines, have proven to be real cash cows and have stood on their own in terms of their profitability to some extent. You'll remember that relatively early in the pandemic, when airlines needed cash, all the big airlines, led first by Delta, I think, used their frequent fire programs as collateral to borrow money to make sure they had enough cash to weather through what at that time we thought was going to be a relatively short pandemic. <laughs> and um, the interesting thing to me when that happened was I found it fascinating that lenders were willing to put real high valuations on a program like Delta Sky Miles. But didn't it seemed to me like they didn't stop to think that, well, if Delta goes under, what is the value of Sky Miles? Like, what is Sky Miles without Delta, right? I, I know that there's partner airlines and things like that. But at least in the U.S., people who remember that program are Delta Flyers or loyal to Delta if that's the program they're maximizing. And so when I look at United wanting to sell a piece of mileage plus to raise some cash, I'm sure there are people interested in that. And if they maintain control of the program and they continue to use the program to drive more traffic on United and more profitability for United through non-airline kind of sales, then whether some piece of it is owned by a financial institution, I don't think would change the relationship. In the case of Aeroplan and Air Canada years ago, they sold the whole program and Aeroplan maintained a marketing relationship with Air Canada. But Ultimately, Air Canada didn't feel they had enough control of their frequent fire program, and they felt that they were losing their customers in a sense, that the customers were going to this other entity, Aeroplan, not to them. And Aeroplan also felt our relationship with Air Canada is what makes this work, and so they were uncomfortable. So ultimately, they bought it back. I think United is smart enough to not let that situation happen. And so if what they're really talking about is selling off some minority share to raise cash, have a financial partner uh, that might bring them other products or help them expand more outside the airline industry, I think it could prove to be a really good thing. But ultimately, Mileage Plus is really important to United, and I don't think they're going to lose the leverage they get from that program for the sake of a short-term financial advantage. So it's selling a piece of the plan, not the whole plan like Air Canada did that you think is 
is the devil in the details here that uh, will make it work. Yeah, I think that's basically what it is. Well, that wraps up the news roundup. Now let's pivot to our guest conversation. Chris, let's turn it back to you. It's our privilege to welcome Jeff Shane to Airlines Confidential. Jeff is truly a global aviation leader from his roles in U.S. government and IATA, among other notable positions. But we'll let Jeff tell us more. All the way from Geneva, Switzerland, Jeff, welcome to Airlines Confidential. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here with you. You have an impressive career across government and law. I'm kind of familiar with it, but I don't know all the details, and certainly our listeners don't. If you could take a few minutes to give a self-introduction and a quick recap of your career and what you're doing now. Sure. Well, let me try to be as brief as possible. It's been a, a long a long run. <laughs> so I'm a lawyer, and uh, I didn't like law school very much, but the, th- the one subject I disliked the least, I guess you could say, is economic regulation, which is a bit ironic given the fact that I'm a big fan of deregulation now. But I came to Washington after law school to work for a classic regulatory agency. It's gone now. It was called the Federal Power Commission. I worked there for a couple of years on, believe it or not, natural gas pipeline rates. Uh, The FPC ran uh, regulation of both natural gas and interstate transmission of electricity. Uh, I found that talking about the, the regulation of natural gas pipeline rates didn't make for great party conversation. And so after a couple of years there, I decided I would look for something else. And at just about that time, a new department had been created by Lyndon Johnson. That's how long ago we're talking about, called the Department of Transportation. And I heard that they were looking for people who knew their way around the administrative law hearing room, which I did as a result of my work at the Federal Power Commission. So I applied for a job there and was hired as a trial lawyer. And the, the, the Department of Transportation was created in order to kind of coordinate transportation policy in the United States. But the problem with that idea was that an awful lot of transportation policy at that time was still being made in independent regulatory agencies like the Interstate Commerce Commission for Railroads and Motor Carriers and the Federal Maritime Commission for Ocean Shipping Conferences and, of course, the Civil Aeronautics Board for Aviation. So if DOT wanted to wanted to establish its policy. It had to make its case very often before these agencies, and that that became my job, along with a, a bunch of other lawyers. Uh, it was fantastic experience, I must say, for any young lawyers or l- wannabe lawyers that are listening in. Uh, the government is a great place to start your career because you get a lot of responsibility very, very quickly, and it can be it can be very interesting. Anyway. Um, Environment became a big issue while I was at the Department of Transportation, um, and I ended up specializing in environmental law. I was probably the only lawyer in the department for a while who did, but we were getting sued all over the place for extending runways and building highways and doing other things. And, And more important than defending those cases was trying to figure out why were the intended beneficiaries of all of our work so unhappy with the product of that work. And so it it became a really interesting exercise in public policy and an awful lot of policy was changed as, as, as a result of that. I got moved over to the policy side of the department uh, after a while, became a deputy assistant secretary. And then after a couple of years at that job, I was invited to move to the Department of State as a deputy assistant secretary for transportation affairs. That was to cover 
international maritime relations as well as international aviation relations. And the most important part of that job was to serve, in effect, as uh, the chief U.S. aviation negotiator, meaning the guy who, uh, with a team of people, obviously, uh, would negotiate uh, landing rights uh, for U.S. carriers in other countries and for foreign carriers in the United States. And at that time, it was a very, call it mercantilistic activity. It was tit for tat. It was, I'll give you three more flights if you give me three. I'll let you have one more airline if you let me have one more airline. Uh, it was it was crazy, but that's that's what I ended up doing for four years. Then I moved over to the Department of Transportation again, returning to DOT, but with a presidential appointment as an assistant secretary for policy and international affairs. I was working then for Sam Skinner, who was the secretary. This was under the George H.W. Bush administration. Uh, did that for about four years. And uh, Andy Card uh, became the secretary uh, after a few years because Sam Skinner was moved over to the White House as chief of staff, as you may recall. Uh, then we all got a pink slip because Bill Clinton was elected to succeed George H.W. Bush. Uh, so I started practicing law for the first time, did that for, for quite a while um, until uh, the year 2001, when I was invited again to come back to the Department of Transportation, in effect, in the same sort of role, it was a policy role, uh, but the, the title was going to be Undersecretary uh, for Policy at DOT. So I did that uh, from, uh, I came in in 2001. I don't think I got confirmed until 2003, actually, because it always takes a long time. Uh, but I did that until 2008 and then went back to practice law again. After about five years of practicing law, I heard that there was an opening at IATA. Uh, the general counsel, who had been a friend of mine, in fact, uh, had given notice and they were looking for another one. And so I thought this might be a job that I like. So I applied for it and got it, I'm happy to say, and moved with my family to Montreal, which is where IATA has its corporate headquarters. After about four and a half, almost five years in Montreal, I talked my boss into relocating the position to the executive offices that IATA has in Geneva. And so we moved to Switzerland. And um, I retired from IATA a little over a year and a half ago. Uh, but my two daughters, I have a 16-year-old and a 12-year-old, are enjoying their school here so much and becoming citizens of the world. They're fluent in French, as you would expect, uh, that we decided to stay on. And so here I am, uh, retired now, but I kind of keep my hand in through being a member of the FAA's Management Advisory Council, on the one hand, and a NASA advisory board called the National Space-Based Positioning, Timing, and Navigation Advisory Board, uh, which is all about GPS. That's not exactly a nutshell, but uh, that's that's a summary of how it's gone. I don't see how your career could fit into a real nutshell, Jeff. <laughs> that's yeah. really amazing. Well, there are so many different policy and competitive issues to talk to you about. So let's start with one that's right in front of us right now, which is the deployment of G5 technology and its impact on aviation. Who's right in this debate? Who's wrong and who cares about this? Yeah, well, it, this is it, it's a catastrophe and never should have happened, as, as everybody knows. But again, as a regulatory lawyer, I sort of know 
I know I know how it happened. <laughs> I know exactly where the FCC was coming from. The FCC is another independent regulatory agency, and it's it's grown up in this culture of independent regulatory agencies governed by the Administrative Procedure Act. And when you want to propose something, what you do is you issue a notice and you invite comments, and then, then you invite rebuttals to those comments. You take all of that stuff into account and you make a decision. And that decision is the final word. And that's what the law says. The law says the FCC gets the final word on the allocation of spectrum, among other things. That's what they did. They had been hearing about radio altimeters, radar altimeters, however you want to call them, uh, for a long time. No question about that. And their order takes that into account. We've been hearing about this. Boeing told us they thought there should be a buffer zone. The FCC said, well, we've actually doubled that buffer zone that Boeing wanted. We think we are protecting aviation to the max with the buffer zone that we have. And besides, we don't think there are too many other problems anywhere else. So that's it. Well, the cardinal error in all of that was to forget that one of the parties before the FCC was the FAA. And the FAA is not just another party. The FAA is itself an instrument of public policy. And the FAA has its own statutory authority that it cannot compromise because of the decision or the analysis or the disagreement of any other agency. It will not do that. It would be irresponsible and, in fact, illegal for it to do that. It doesn't have the option of relying on the FCC's analysis if, in its own judgment, there is a risk to aviation from what the FCC has decided spectrum-wise. There had not been the real world testing that would satisfy the FAA. And, and you know, you and I as, as passengers can be very happy that the FAA isn't satisfied with anything but real world testing, because that's why we have the, the, the best safety record in the world in aviation. So it was, it was, I don't like, you know, I don't like calling people names, uh, but this was kind of an amateur hour performance by the FCC. There was a hearing, I, I, you may have tuned into the hearing, it was last week before the, the Aviation Subcommittee of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. Uh, I thought it was a great hearing. We had Chairman DeFazio of the TNI Committee and Chairman uh, Rick Larson of the, of the Aviation Subcommittee articulating this problem, frankly, better than I have just done. And they, they really understand it. Now, whether as a result of the revelations that we heard during that hearing, we're going to see a change is is really the open question. I think there has to be a change. It doesn't even have to be a legislative change. It could be an undertaking by the FCC to simply back off when they hear other agencies complaining about the, the potential compromising of systems that they rely upon and that the public relies upon. There needs to be, before anybody auctions off any spectrum, there, ne- there needs to be uh, an agreement as to what mitigations will be necessary in order to make sure that everybody continues to do their job. That didn't happen. And by the way, it, it, the last thing I'll say about it is that this was no gift to AT&T and Verizon. They were misled. They thought they were, you know, they spent tens of billions of dollars on the spectrum that they were buying, not being aware that Somebody would come along and say, you, you, you're going to be limited in how you can use it, it's at least around airports. That shouldn't have happened. They should have been fully cognizant of what the limitations were, what the conditions would be on their use of that spectrum before they they ponied up any money for it. And that, that didn't happen either. So 
I, I don't believe in the heroes and villains narrative. I think that's a waste of time. I think the FCC is an incredible agency. They brought all sorts of miracles to all of us, and we can be grateful for that. They take their job seriously. They're professionals. Uh, it's a complicated, complicated job that they have. But there's still there's a flaw in the system now that, that we really need to address. And until we do it, uh, we're going to find more and more of these, these conflicts taking place uh, to the detriment of everyone. End of screed. <laughs> well, I, we don't want you to hold back, Jeff. So, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> let's talk about another technology issue impacting aviation. When you were at IATA, you were in the middle of the NDC debate, uh, the new distribution capability technology platform. We've not been real kind to IATA in some of our previous discussions. Uh, can you provide a little more insight on IATA's motivation and where we are now? And specifically, is IATA the right party to drive these technology advance, advancements in the business? Yeah. Well, uh, th thanks for the question. Yes, I know you've not been kind to IATA, Chris. I've heard you. Um, <laughs> uh, so let me correct the record. First of all, is IATA the right place? Absolutely. Um, you know, IATA grew up in, uh, it was 1945, it was in that period that the war was ending, uh, ICAO was created uh, to, to handle rulemaking on the public sector side. IATA was set up as a kind of a, well, it was a couple of things. It was a standard setter for the commercial industry, and it had to be granted antitrust immunity in order to gather all of its members together in one room and figure out, you know, how, how things should go. Uh, there needed to be consistency if we we're going to have an efficient global system. And, you know, people needed to know what signals meant when they landed in a foreign country. So there were obvious reasons to have an IATA. In fact, IATA and ICAO actually shared offices in the very early part of their 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 existences. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the resolution creating NDC, Resolution 787, it was called, um, came out of something called the Passenger Services Conference, which develops lots of uh, standards for the uh, for the industry, and you you might say, well, yeah, but are there guys there that understand the technology of all of this? And the answer to that is yes. Um, not, I don't know. The airlines would send their experts to the the uh, the, the the PACConf, we call it, the Passenger Services Conference, and they would know what they were talking about. But more than that, IATA went out and hired. A bunch of people from the from the distribution side to help guide this activity. So, as to whether IATA was equipped to, to deal with this, I think unquestionably they were. Let me talk though about the motivation because I think that's a really interesting question. And I, NDC had already been announced by the time I arrived at IATA in 2013, so I kind of came in, in in a little bit after the beginning of it. And I I have to say. Uh, that I, I winced a bit when I read some of the speeches that had been given because I, I'm inclined to agree with you, Chris. It was They were not helpful. You couldn't read those speeches without sort of treating this as a declaration of war on the GDSs and the whole distribution industry, which I didn't think was going to get us anywhere. That didn't last too long, I'm happy to say, because <laughs> the airline industry realized that whatever they thought about the, the GDSs, they were still responsible for something like 80% of the tickets sold around the world and there wasn't any way to get rid of them. Um, so there was a kind of a retrenchment at, at that point and uh, a greater willingness to talk. And the narrative changed to some extent, I think, at that point to make clear that NDC was not designed 
to eliminate GDSs by any means. It was meant to be it was meant to be an advanced technology that would facilitate everybody raising their game. And, and, and by that, I mean, and this was the going in proposition for the airlines, you know, as a result of deregulation uh, and, and international liberalization, airlines have become increasingly competitive. They, they are retailers and, and like retailers of any product or services, what they want to do is is have product differentiation. They want to be able to distinguish themselves from their competitors. And through the GDSs, that was impossible. You know, I mean, I, I don't, this, what I kept hearing, I'm not an expert in the technology, so you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I kept hearing that that the GDSs were still relying on Edifact, you know, this, this 30-year-old messaging protocol uh, that had been around since before the internet Whereas the rest of the world was all already relying on what's called XML uh, language, extensible markup language. Um, that's the language of the internet. So NDC was in part designed to kind of get everybody to move into the 21st century, at least on the quality of the communications. But more than that, to have much more than just, you know, the flights that are available, the times, um, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, would there be baggage charges or not? I mean, the, the GDSs were not delivering the richness of content that the airline industry really wanted. You spend hundreds of millions of dollars trying to upgrade the product. You want to be able to tell people about it. You want them to see it. That's the whole effort, therefore, was to try to drive people as much as possible to the airline's own dedicated websites where they could see all of that, where they could really be responsible. That was a big part of it. And the other part of it was that... The, the feeling that there needed to be a, a different approach to the marketing of, of air transport, a, a more personalized approach, you know, having an, a, a more dynamic process for personalizing offers. And I mean, I know this is a little bit controversial, but that was the, that was the, the point. The idea was let's really change the, change the paradigm here a little bit. Let's really have competition. Let's really, think how creative we can be in terms of marketing these services. This should not be treated as a commodity. We're we spend too much money trying to make sure it's not treated as a commodity. How can we market it more effectively? And so that, that was the underlying theory behind G, uh, NDC. Now, I mean, it's gone through a lot of conversations. The, the, the GDSs have, and I know, Chris, you spent time at a couple of them. They've marched headlong in the direction of a, a much more contemporary approach to the marketing of aviation. And I'd like to think, and I'm out of it now, so I can't really tell you what's going on today, but I'd like to think that, uh, you know, the, the, the swords have been laid aside and uh, that the industry, the airline industry and the distribution industry are working together hand in hand in a much more effective way. You can probably tell me more about that. Um, so I, I, does that help at all? Absolutely. Look, I, I'm not here to defend the GDS industry either, so I, I could probably lay out more criticisms of them than you know perhaps you could. So, um, <laughs> so you know, I, I think it was going back to what you said at the top of the answer, which was the the initial approach turned this into a, a philosophical debate that didn't need to be, and it really didn't accomplish much in furthering technology advancement, and. In almost any other industry, there's always tension between producers and distributors and suppliers, and and 
what goes on in the airline business isn't that different from auto manufacturers and dealers or manufacturers at Walmart or whatever it might be. Um, Let me respectfully disagree with you, Chris. Here's, here's the difference. In the airline industry, well, let me not call it the airline. Let's call it the aviation ecosystem, right? The airlines are part of that ecosystem, but what they've noticed is that everybody else in the ecosystem has a return on investment that's two to three times what theirs is. Everybody makes two to three times as much money as the airlines do, despite the fact that the air, without the airlines, there would be no ecosystem. That, that creates resentment. It has created resentment. Uh, and I, as the chief legal guy at IATA, you know, sense that pretty clearly. And when you look around at, um, look at the distribution, I mean, how many global distribution systems are there? There are you know, three, four max. How many engine manufacturers are there? How many airframe manufacturers are there? It's, it, you, have, you have certainly a lot more ground service providers, but at any one airport, how many are there? How many back office systems are there? So, you know, you've got a lot of concentration in other parts of the ecosystem. One of the things we did, I think, quite effectively was to, um, to negotiate with one of the major engine manufacturers to basically have them turn their rules into something that were more customer friendly. I mean, please don't tell me you're going to avoid my warranty because you found a non-OEM part that's generic that had nothing to do with the the, the engine, uh, the engine's performance. Don't don't void my warranty because of that. Don't void my warranty because of other little footfalls, things that that were happening. We thought because of the concentration in this industry, I'm, I'm happy to say that all of that actually worked quite well. Um, the there is a consumer or a customer friendly element in, in the way everybody in the in the industry performs when you have to just, if there's a problem, you've got to call that problem out. And IATA was in a unique position to do that. Why was IATA in a, a unique position to do that? Because, I mean, an awful lot of the problems in the industry are very difficult to demonstrate to a regulator because there are non-disclosure agreements. There are confidentiality agreements. You know, people sign these papers and they can't they can't talk about what's really going on in their, in their bilateral relationships with their suppliers. On the other hand, IATA, we could hire a law firm, for example, and turn every one of our members into an individual client of that law firm. And each one of those clients could tell the law firm what was going on in its bilateral relationship. The law firm, without allowing any of those people to talk to each other, could then formulate a pattern. It could anonymize it and demonstrate that pattern to regulators if necessary to show that there really is uh, an unfortunate consequence of the concentration that we're seeing in different parts of the industry. So th that's what we did. That was probably the part of uh, my responsibility that I think I'm proudest of because I think it actually helped to change the conversation. Well, I, I love I, I love a spirit of debate. I am, like I said, I could probably argue both sides of this, but at the end of the day, I don't know any airline that failed because of their distribution costs. Their business their business models fail or succeed on a bunch of things, but I'm not sure the distribution costs sometimes just become a lightning rod for debate because it just pisses people off. But I don't think it's an overwhelming part of 
Maybe I wasn't paying attention, Chris, but I don't think I said anybody failed because of the distribution. No, 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 I said no, no. they resented it. They resented yeah, the fact well, that exactly. they couldn't control them. They they just basically had no way to negotiate full content clauses, you know, most favored nation clauses, all, all these things, the very booking fees themselves, they were non-negotiable. And and so that that, yeah, look, <laughs> that I, radicalizes I, the industry. I've been on both sides of it, and I I know how the GDSs can behave as well. So everybody needs to rethink the relationship in different ways. I think you know that was maybe one of the outcomes of the NDC debate was people hopefully moving to a a higher plane uh, of of cooperation. But we'll see. Absolutely, but to you know to answer your your first question again, if I haven't already done it three times, <laughs> is that IATA was was the organization that could do that. No yeah. individual airline had the had the ability or the power uh, or the influence to make a difference. So no, uh, no all fair. You know, Jeff, when I first got to Spirit Airlines in two thousand five, I was looking at a company that had so many problems. We had a contract with Airbus that would have had us taking delivery of an A321 in just a few years with a number that would start with 80 million or something like that. But a ridiculous, a ridiculous number. We had uh, animosity between the pilot union and the company. So many routes we were fine, we're losing money and things. But in the first week or so, I learned that the one thing that Spirit had not done wrong, in a sense, was it had no favored nations deals with any GDS. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, good for that. Now we can at least do something <laughs> with the GDS and have some sort of leverage. And so I know exactly what you're talking about when you talk about that frustration, because my whole career before that, it was that that darn you know, most favored nations thing, which airlines, you know, signed on their own and they said it's worth this distribution for us to do this. So I'm not blaming the GDSs for doing that, but in Spirit's case, they hadn't. And we were ultimately able to leverage that to our advantage. Well, I, yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, no airline is forced to sign anything. So you, know, you, you, can, you can operate. I mean, Southwest has done this successfully. For decades, um, now they're in, now they're embracing GDS in different kinds of ways. Again, international is the first word in, in IATA's title. Um, we're, you can't function, Chris, without if you're if you want to be a major player internationally without being uh, signed on to all of the GDSs. That's just a a given. Um, maybe if you're a Norwegian, you know, uh, I don't know how some of the newer entrants are doing it, but if you're a global sort of connecting carrier, you've got to be there. Yeah, no, look, it's a, it's a great debate and I, I, I tee it up so that we can, we can have it. So yeah. we're not going to, we're not going to solve it here. But happily, uh, you know, we, we all do know that we all need each other and I think things have taken a much a better turn uh, as a result of uh, maybe a rough start in the yes. beginning. Uh, and uh, let's hope it, it stays that way because God knows the industry uh, has got to, you know, pull itself together and get back on its feet. And that's going to take everybody pulling in the same direction. Yep. Let's move on. And some call you the father of open skies, or at least the drive by the U.S. government to achieve open skies agreements with countries around the world. 
Talk to us about how that effort came to be, how you broke the log jams in this, and if the liberalization of international air travel has met your expectations. Oh, thanks. Uh, and th thanks for the uh, encomium. I, <laughs> I, I, a lot of people were responsible for open skies. Uh, I was in a position where I could help to drive it for sure. And uh, I'm, I'm proud of the role that I played. Uh, at the end of the day, the, it's the cabinet officer that's going to take all the lumps if it's a bad idea. And that would have been Sam Skinner in the first instance. He was very enthusiastic about it and, and courageous and willing to take whatever hits came along, as was Andy Card, uh, who became secretary when we actually did the first Open Skies Agreement. But you've asked an interesting question. How did it happen? First of all, it wouldn't have happened without domestic deregulation back in 1978. And you'll recall that shortly after we deregulated, in fact, it was actually before we passed the Airline Deregulation Act, which by the way, is a miracle, nothing less than a miracle of public policy when you think about it. Let me digress because the airline industry was almost entirely opposed to airline deregulation. I think United Airlines might have been the one outlier. Bob Crandall, whom you've had on, uh, still, <laughs> he's, as he said during your interview with him, he's still opposed to it, still thinks it was a bad idea. It was a very good idea. It was a very, very rough patch for the industry because it was a transition that nobody really understood. Uh, it was a much more difficult transition than anybody ever expected. Um, but it, 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 it delivered incredible amounts of benefit uh, to the American people. And by the way, and, and aviation can be very proud of this. I think most of, most people have forgotten it, but it was airline deregulation that led to the deregulation of everything else that's been deregulated, whether it's other transportation modes like, like railroads or motor carriers or uh, financial services or uh, the delivery of, of power. Um, everything that we enjoy today in a kind of more competitive mode was unleashed as a result of the success of airline deregulation, uh, a, a def direct cause and effect relationship there, I think. Anyway, as I was about to say, even before we got that Airline Deregulation Act passed, the Carter administration had, had taken a very hard look at the way in which these bilateral agreements were being negotiated, the ones that I was responsible for uh, during the Reagan years when I was at the Department of State. And it wanted to liberalize those agreements. It wanted to get away from you know both sides being able to regulate price and both sides being able to regulate capacity. And so it actually started uh, offering more access to the United States in return for another government's willingness to create a, a zone of flexibility for airfares or to just agree not to, not to regulate airfares in that bilateral market, not to regulate capacity. Um, not to regulate the number of airlines that could fly. Any number of airlines from the United States that wanted to fly to your country should be allowed to. That was very controversial. And in fact, it was so controversial that um, by the time Ronald Reagan was elected, the, the, the major incumbent airlines, the ones that were doing most of the international service, fired off a huge paper to the Reagan administration denouncing the Carter administration's uh, liberalization policy is the worst thing that had ever happened to the airline industry. Our performance is worse than it's ever been, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the, the Reagan administration, as a result, put a kind of hiatus in place for a, le a little while 
uh, on those bilateral negotiations. And it finally came back and it continued the, the effort to liberalize. But at, at the, in the beginning, that's how controversial it was. And, and there were hearings in the Congress uh, over this policy. The Congress denounced the policy as well. This was a bipartisan denunciation of uh, the Carter administration's liberalization policy, which ev eventually got adopted by the Reagan administration and finally by every other administration that's come after. So the, the liberalization process, while it wasn't anything like open skies, began back in the 70s. Um, what I noticed by the time I came to the State Department was that our trading partners were were having a difficult time in these bilateral relationships. The U.S. carriers that were flying to their countries were were basically, you know, enjoying this robust uh, hub and spoke system in this candy store of a market that we call the United States of America and able to uh, carry enormous loads across uh, the Atlantic and the Pacific, whereas, unfortunately, our trading partners would, would have a small country to fly from, not much feed coming in, in the other direction. And so and they, we, we weren't even allowing code sharing in the beginning, so they really did kind of a point-to-point -point service trying to kind of fight against hub-and-spoke carriers with a point-to-point -point service. It just wasn't working for them. And they began calling into question the sustainability of some of these relationships. Something had to be done. So the first thing we did was we allowed code sharing to give them at least the semblance of more feed, maybe the the, the reality of, of greater feed so that there could be fairer competition. Um, they still weren't very happy. Uh, I began making speeches uh, around the country as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State responsible for this when I was doing the the airline negotiations, I was invited to a lot of chambers of commerce to talk to them about aviation. Cities all wanted more and more international aviation. And I, I can remember one episode, if I can just uh, digress for a second, where I went to Atlanta and I explained to them that, um, yes, I knew that Swiss Air wanted to fly a nonstop from Zurich to Atlanta, but U.S. carriers were having a very difficult time with the counter space that they were get, being given in, in places like Zurich and Geneva. And until we could get that doing business problem solved, we just wouldn't be able to give Swiss Air, as it was then called, the ability to fly to Atlanta. Those people looked at me like I had crawled out of a flying saucer. The federal government is getting in the way of our enjoying two or $300 million a year in our local economy because of counter space problems in Zurich and Geneva. I mean, the, the, frankly, the more I, I, I met with these folks and the more of these negotiations I did myself, the more ridiculous it began to seem to me that we were calibrating air services in, internationally when it was such an economic driver uh, on, on both sides of the ocean, whichever ocean you're talking about. So, by the time I got to the Department of Transportation and I knew that Sam Skinner, the, my boss, the Secretary of Transportation, would be enthusiastic about making some change happen, and I, I developed some consensus within the administration for that, we decided to start moving in that direction. We didn't do open skies right away. We did something called the Underserved Cities Program, which was a very simple idea. It just meant, look, if, if a city in the United States is not being connected in a nonstop way to another country. And the airline from that other country wants to fly to the city in the United States. No U.S. carrier is competing for that service. No, no U.S. carrier wants to serve it. Why do we have to have a negotiation? Why don't we just let them serve?
So we put that out as a notice of proposed rulemaking or proposed policy or something. Uh, we got a few comments. People didn't seem to object too much. So we put it in place. So all of a sudden, it was now possible to fly to U.S. cities that hadn't been served by others for the asking. This was a, a revelation that we could actually give it away for nothing. As a result of all the controversy in the in the earlier uh, years when the Carter administration's policy was being denounced, Congress had actually put a law in place saying that you had to get as good as you gave. I mean, it was almost like the, the negotiations had to be completely balanced. But we were able to break the back of that with this so-called underserved cities program. Today, <laughs> there are obviously more than 120 open skies agreements around the world with the United States as a partner, and then lots of others in which the United States is not a party. Uh, so it has become something close to a, a global uh, policy. It's a default policy around the world, uh, increasingly, if not if not precisely an open skies agreement, uh, at least a very liberal agreement. So then, Jeff, having said all that, and as we venture close to the 30th anniversary of the U.S.-Netherlands uh, open skies agreement, should the Chicago Convention be scrapped? I mean, could it be scrapped? I mean, what's the utility for it moving forward? Well, the, it's interesting. You know, when when they began the conference, I've, I've actually written about this, when they began the conference in, in November of 1944, I mean, the war was still going on. It was incredible. 700 delegates showed up in Chicago with the war still raging in both Europe and the Pacific, and they cobbled together this agreement. Roosevelt invited them all. And his idea was a global open skies agreement. He wanted, it, I'm not sure it would have looked like the agreements that we have today, but he basically said it should just be by reciprocity. If I open my market to you, and you, if you open your market to me, I'll open my market to you. Everybody should just do that. That's And he wanted a treaty that, that basically said that. They actually wrote that treaty in Chicago along with the what we call the Chicago Convention today. Uh, it, it didn't get any, any serious... Uh, attention and never became, never took effect. Um, but the, the, the Chicago Convention that was produced is essentially the, that's the treaty that created ICAO, which is the global standard setter and um, sets the rules of the road pretty much for governments to follow. Governments have to take those rules and turn them into national law, but they do. That's what the Chicago Convention, uh, yeah, the Chicago Convention is just a framework and it has not been changed very much in all the years since. And I just don't see, I've heard people saying, let's scrap the Chicago Convention. Why? I mean, what, what, would, you, what would you put in its place? You'd have to have uh, an organization like ICAO that creates global consistency around the world to the greatest possible extent, uh, that, that works out international routes between countries, that, that, that can pronounce on big disputes. Um, I don't see that there's anything wrong with the Chicago Convention. I'm sorry that they didn't go all the way and create uh, you know, the other agreement that Roosevelt wanted, the market access agreement that would have probably um, it, it would have obviated the need for all of these bilateral. We have like you know, 3,000 bilateral agreements around the world. You want to look at a map with bilateral agreements, it would look like you've torn the cover off a baseball and all these lines between countries. It's a very complicated way to do business. It could have been done much more simply if people gone, had gone along with Roosevelt's idea. Of course, there was no way they would because uh, at that time, the US had all the airplanes and it looked like uh, a put-up job to everybody else. The, the, the Brits 
would have none of it. And so it, it, it really went nowhere. And, and it's reasonable to expect that it wouldn't have gone nowhere uh, given the circumstances of the time. Yeah, so I don't, I, don't see, I don't see any compelling need to get rid of the Chicago Convention. I don't see what the, what the advantage would be. Well, Jeff, this has been a fascinating conversation and a lively debate. Um, I feel like, uh, to quote Lin-Manuel Miranda, this has been like talking to someone who was in the room where it happened. Um, you have uh, seen lots of uh, aviation milestones and, and changes over the past 30 plus years of your career in government and law. So we appreciate your sharing your knowledge with our listeners and certainly with Ben and myself. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Jeff, it's been absolutely wonderful. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential, brought to you with the support of TA Connections. TA Connections provides an intelligent, integrated, and flexible suite of applications that allow airlines and cruise lines to efficiently book and manage crew lodging. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Our thanks again to Jeff Shane for capably answering our questions. Now we'll try to answer a few of yours. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Ben, our first question is from Andrew in Brookline, Massachusetts. The story about Cutter Airways and the A350 paint job is fascinating to me. The temperature extremes that aircraft endure between normal altitude flight and the Middle East desert is astounding. I'm not sure I understand the safety issue at all, but I haven't heard of any similar issues with the Boeing 787, which is also a composite aircraft. Has Airbus done something different than Boeing that has resulted in this issue? Or are there just fewer Dreamliners operating out of the desert? Thanks. I'm looking forward to Seth returning for a few songs someday. Well, thank you, Andrew. We'll have to ask Seth if his uh, singing voice is still available <laughs> to us. <laughs> he better sing because I'm not going to. So. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not sure that this is just a composite surface issue that's caused these paint issues for Cutter. I think clearly the the environment in which they operate these planes has made some of this happen. But I think that this is an issue that is serious for Cutter, but has been made bigger than it is with Cutter using it to try to really push leverage on Airbus and Airbus push back saying, well, if you're going to do that, then we can do this. And I think that in Alfred Hitchcock movies, there is um, a term that's called the MacGuffin, which is something that seems really important, but ends up really not driving what the story's all about. <laughs> you know? and, and I think the paint 
on the uh, Qatar airplanes is the MacGuffin in this story. I think there are bigger issues going on between Qatar and Airbus, and they're both using what they have to sort of escalate that up. And at some point, it's probably going to come to a head, and my guess is Qatar will be a long-term flyer of Airbus airplanes, and Airbus will be happy Qatar is a client. But I really think that's what it comes down to, and that's why I think you haven't heard about issues with the 787. I'm not sure if they are having paint issues or not. And I th- really think it's because the paint issues, while they were real, and I'm not suggesting they weren't frustrating for Cutter, I don't think they're the main issue at stake in this conversation. Yeah, that's a good summation. I mean, if there was a real issue with the paint, I would think Airbus would be the first one to want to address it. And then also there'd be a grand swell of concern from other customers about it. Mm-hmm. And Airbus apparently feels confident enough that it's not an issue to proceed in the way that they've done so. And then Ben Scott from the Twin Cities wrote in with a question specifically for you. You have recently stated that over 40% of traffic is no longer with the big four airlines in the USA. Sun Country Airlines is an airline we rarely hear about, and I was curious on your thoughts about their business model. They operate as an ultra-low-cost carrier, charter carrier, and cargo carrier for Amazon in the current market. This diversified model seems like a great way to ensure stability and profitability, but was wondering what you think. Well, thanks, Scott. Sun Country is a great airline, and they were extremely flexible and nimble once the pandemic hit by converting their airline to an almost all-cargo airline or maybe all-cargo airline for a period of time. They've done very well since being taken private. Their CEO, Jude Bricker, who came from Allegiant Air, is doing a great job as their CEO there. And we'd certainly would like to have him on the show at some point. We've reached out to him and maybe you'll get to hear from him soon. But one of the reasons that the big four airlines, who at one point carried more than 80% of the traffic in the United States, now carry in the 60% range is because of the growth of carriers like Sun Country and JetBlue, Alaska, Hawaiian, Spirit, Frontier, Allegiant, and others, the new airlines, Avello and Breeze. The U.S. has such a dynamic market, and most of the growth is coming in the lower-cost, smaller airline space, and it's really good that there is that dynamism in the U.S. market with a diversity of airlines. Sun Country is very important to Minneapolis, too, because Delta operates a big hub there. They're a great airline, but sometimes people want something simpler and a lower price. And it's nice to have Sun Country as an alternative there. So thanks for reminding us about Sun Country. I agree with you. They're a great business. And at some point, Hopefully, we're going to get Jude Bricker on to talk about it. And then just a comment from our former U.S. Airways colleague, Dave Navarre from Washington, D.C. Hey, Chris and Ben, I am hooked on your podcast, having listened to every episode. When I went online to listen to your most recent podcast last week, February 2nd, and saw that the episode was one hour and 22 minutes and had a guest whose name I did not immediately recognize, I thought I was in for a drawn out and boring episode. Boy, was I wrong. What an interesting and fascinating guest Ken McKenzie was. Most aviation execs would be content with just one of the many things Ken took on. And to top it off, I was on the edge of my sofa while listening to the riveting account 
of the plane crash he and his wife survived in the Everglades. Keep up the excellent podcast, Ben and Chris. So Dave, just a note, great to hear from you. And thanks for the nice words, especially about Ken. Listeners, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode, we encourage you to do so. You'll learn a lot. Thanks, Dave. It's great to hear from you too. And thanks for the positive words about the podcast. So Ben, your turn to take the finer wine of the week. And this is from James in Macon, Georgia. I had a flight on Delta to Atlanta connecting to Milwaukee. The Atlanta airport is huge and Delta does little to help get around. I arrived in Terminal B and looked at the monitor and it said my flight to Milwaukee was in Terminal E. I got on the train to E, checked the monitor, and my flight had moved to Terminal C. I took the train to Terminal C. And guess what? Now the flight was on D. When I finally got to D, they were about to close the door and then the gate agent told me I should have gotten to the gate sooner. Talk about adding insult to injury. Well, James, I've been in Atlanta, and you're right, it's a huge airport. And I have to say that while my first intuition of this was to say it's kind of a wine because you look at the FIDs and you see where the flight is and you do your best to get there on time, I'm going to say this is fine because it certainly isn't normally Delta's MO to change the gate of a flight over and over and over again. Obviously, they weren't out there towing the plane around from gate to gate, but they were sort of in a mode where they were changing which airplane was going to be used to fly you up to Milwaukee. And as it moved once and forth, I can just imagine you sort of coming up from that escalator and seeing, okay, I'm on D. Oh, wait a minute. Now it's there or wherever. So I actually think this is fine. I think Delta should certainly not have been mean to you when you got there. I'm glad that you were able to still make the flight because I imagine with those kind of changes, you might have even missed the flight, which would have been even worse. But for the gate agent to maybe not have been aware that the flight had changed so often. I'm sure you weren't the only one who were there late, and I bet some people actually missed the flight. So I'm going to say this is fine. This is not what Delta normally does, and I bet this situation messed up a number of customers. Yeah, I don't want to pick on the gate agent, but that was that was uncalled for. He clearly knew what was going on, and I'm sure that there were multiple passengers arriving out of breath. So, Well, I think that's right. As we wrap up the show, I'm going to give my shout out, and I feel a little embarrassed to do this now after that finer wine, but I'm going to give my shout out to Delta, not because they moved the gate to Milwaukee so many times <laughs> for James, but because they have put out to the industry and to the FAA a call to create a national no-fly list for disruptive customers. And I think that is a really good initiative. The disruptive customers that we've seen all through last summer that more recently have turned back flights to Newark and Miami that were going across the ocean and such has just just has to stop. And I think it's crazy that if you disrupt a flight on one airline, you can just get on another airline and do the same thing. So I applaud Delta for trying to push the FAA to broaden the scope of the no-fly list, not to call these people terrorists, because I don't think they meet that definition, but to say if one airline bans someone for disruptive behavior, all airlines should. That's a good initiative and will go further to stop this bad behavior. 
I second that one. Both uh, you're shouting out for Delta and Delta's initiative. So totally agree. My shout out is to Bob Jordan, who took over last week as CEO of Southwest Airlines. Hard to believe that Southwest has only had three CEOs in its 50-year history. So we're all wishing Bob the best and issuing an open call to come see us here at Airlines Confidential. I'm sure our listeners would love that. I'm sure they would too. I hope everyone has a great week and thanks for listening to Airlines Confidential. Have a good week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.